All right, good morning, everyone. My name is James Lockett. I'm the secretary from First Generation Law Student Association. This morning, we have another guest, Adam Harmon. Adam, I'll go ahead and take a moment to have you introduce yourself. Hey, uh, my name is Adam Harmon. Um, I am currently the diversity, uh, professional development and diversity manager at Wilmer Hale. Um, I'm actually headed out the door. I'm switching careers. I'm going to be the diversity or director of diversity at Ginkgo BioWorks starting in December. Um, prior to that, I was at Boston University School of Law in the Career Services Office. And before that, I was a practicing corporate attorney at Foley Hoag, doing mostly venture capital and M&A work. Um, I graduated from Boston College Law School in 2015. And before that, I was in the Army uh, on active duty for about 12 years. Um, so that's just a quick overview of how I got to where I am and happy to be speaking with you today. Awesome. I appreciate that. So Adam, I actually kind of want to jump in off of that. So you said you're going to Kinko, is that correct? Or I'm going to make sure I got that. Uh, Ginkgo, um, like the like the ginkgo tree, ginkgo biloba. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, why are um, why are you going or looking at a yep. career change? Uh, so it's less a career change than an industry change. Um, so I uh, in the legal industry right now, my contribution is in the diversity and inclusion sphere. So um, it's really helping first generation diverse law students, um, LGBT folks navigate the legal profession because it is such a um, homogeneous profession. Um, but diversity work, I think, is something that's important across all industries. And there are other industries that are just as homogeneous as the legal industry. So Ginkgo BioWorks is a biotech startup. I'll be working mostly with um, their, their – sorry, I have some dogs in here. Um, I'll be mostly working with their uh, engineering department. So I'm helping them with the recruitment, retention, promotion, and advancement of diverse engineers within the industry. Um, so it's not a profession change as much as an industry change for me. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. No, I, I did want to ask though. So I know that you went to law school and then before that you were in the military. So I'm curious, you know, backing up a little bit when you got out of the military, why, why did you look to law school as far as a career change? I'm sure that you probably have a similar answer to myself, but, um, we both have similar backgrounds being in the military, but I just wanted to know what, what led you to look at law school? after getting out of the army? Uh, I think there were two major things. Um, the first and most immediate was I had, um, I gotten back from Iraq in 2000 and God, it was late 2009. Um, and then I got married in 2011. Um, and this is relevant because in 2011, don't ask, don't tell had been repealed, but DOMA was still in effect. So the military couldn't recognize my husband and my marriage. So when I got out of the army, it was sort of a, um, I don't want to call it a last minute decision, but neither one of us had planned on getting out of the military. We both planned on staying in for the long career, but because they didn't recognize us as being married, um, we had a decision point where we were either going to get out of the military um, and pursue a life together, or we wouldn't see each other for about three years because we were on opposite deployment cycles. Um, so at the time when I was trying to consider what to do with the rest of my life, um, I had every opportunity available to me. Um, I was 31 years old um, and hadn't really considered what to do outside of the military, but I had a really good experience with the JAG officer when I was in Iraq. Um, she helped me through a lot of really difficult situations in terms of um, navigating my own job and navigating some of the decisions I had to make when I was downrange. Um, so I thought the legal industry seemed interesting. What she did seemed interesting insofar as I knew. Um, and then the other half of it was, frankly, when I grew up, um, my, my dad didn't go to college. My mom didn't go to college. Um, 
But when you grow up, at least how I grew up, um, people talked about lawyers and doctors as being successful. That's just what they told you, you know. Um, when you grow up, you should if you showed any kind of inclination for academia, they would say you should be a doctor or a lawyer because that's what successful people do. Um, so if I were to be completely honest, I would say I went into law school and the legal profession less because I had some sort of drive to be a passionate advocate or anything like that and more because that's just what successful people did. And when I had the opportunity to get out of the army and had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, um, it made sense for me to do that thing. I appreciate that. I would say I think that your experience, especially from your deployment, from something you just brought up uh, with having a good experience or positive experience with the JAG, um, I had a similar situation when I was deployed, just working through some stuff and a lot of nuances there. And I had a very positive experience with the JAG officer. So I think that that also helped shape some of my own reasons. Um, I do want to hit on the uh, the success piece, um, something that you brought up and how you looked kind of as doctors and lawyers as successful and driven people. So what about that in your current role? I guess, or, you know, this is kind of a weird question, but I, I guess from that success piece, you know, how, how do you try to bring that to your current role? How do you try to take what you know about being successful and helping out other first-generation law students and people from underserved backgrounds in the legal world? No, that's a super relevant question. And honestly, it's how I got to where I am today. Um, So when I started law school, I I knew nothing about what lawyers did. I knew nothing about networking. I I didn't know anything about OCI. I had no idea what the career paths available were. Um, So when I got to law school, I remember I sat down next to, her name was Alejandra Salinas, and she's now like an incredible litigator at a boutique IP law firm in Texas. Her dad was an attorney and she sat down next to me and was like, you know, I want to practice this kind of law. I want to do it at big law. So Alejandra, her, come here, Tiff, come here. Give me a second. I'm going to pick her up. Come girl. Um, so Alejandra's dad was an attorney and she knew exactly what she wanted to do and what the career path was and everything else. And I was sort of like, I don't know, I want to help people. That was about as much as I had thought through it because to me, getting into law school meant I was successful. I had won the game. Um, everybody in my family thought that me just getting into high, into law school meant that I was already successful. And to some degree, it's true because you've, when you get into law school, you know, you've met a lot of gating mechanisms that most people in your family and most people in your community may not have met. So in that sense, you are one of the most successful people they know, but it's just the start of a much longer journey. And I didn't realize that when I got to law school. So there were a lot of people and organizations that really helped me through it, including all of the different bar associations. The Student Veterans Association at BC was instrumental in helping me succeed, like sharing their networks with me, sharing, like teaching me what outlining is, really basic stuff that I had just not thought through or known about. Um, So when I started as a practicing attorney, I took it upon myself as sort of an additional duty within my legal career to continue doing that kind of outreach to law students, specifically law students of color, LGBT and first generation law students who didn't have the same access that people like Alejandra had and people like I needed. Um, So I would bring them in and say, hey, you know, when you hear people talk about corporate law, this is what it is. And I would show them what a deal document looked like. I would show them what diligence spreadsheets are. And when people say M&A work, this is what it is. And this is what the daily life of an M&A attorney is, especially, you know, your first and second year of practice. And so that's when I realized that my passion for 
work was more in doing that kind of outreach and helping people succeed through this system that they don't necessarily have access to and access is what makes you successful. Um, so that's how I ended out in the role I'm in today, as opposed to being a practicing attorney. Um, and I still sort of have the same vision for what I do, which is to help expand access to those folks who, who don't come into the profession that they're in, be that the legal world or engineering or really any of the sort of higher end professions that, that people are going into, um, making sure that those doors are as wide as possible and that they have as much help to gain equal footing as they can. I think that's a, that's a wonderful point. And, you know, it really is important. I think that the whole, something that I, I keep hearing come out of some of your answers is kind of this, this idea of service. Um, something I want to kind of follow up with is, so I know you started at Foley Hoag as an associate um, and you started, you, you mentioned that you really tried to focus on how to explain to other people who are underrepresented, whether that be LGBTQ or uh, persons, that, people of color, um, what does big law look like? At, how did you do that? Was that more your own pro bono stuff that you were doing on the side or you're reaching back out to BC and you know, organizations you were a member of there. I'm just kind of curious, how did you go from being an associate to kind of saying, okay, this is what I'm really passionate about and getting into that realm? So I started out doing it really organically and it was just my own, because all of these organizations helped me get to where I was, the way I approached my legal career was to say very affirmatively that if I got invited or asked to do anything, I would always say yes. So if it was a networking thing that law schools put on, if it was being part of a mentorship program, if a student asked to get coffee, I said yes to all of them. Um, and I I didn't just get coffee. I made, uh, so one thing I did was if, if a student asked, you know, hey, I'd, I'd love to meet and get coffee and talk about your career, I would always say, why don't you come into the office? Um, because for me, I thought it was important that law students, especially law students who had never been in a legal office, saw what it was like, just so that the first time they step into a law office is when they're interviewing for, for a job. Um, just to help normalize the whole process and expose them to as much as possible. Um, so I was doing that two or three times a week. Um, and the generally speaking, and I can only speak to the law firm experience. Um, if you meet a law student, you generally let the recruiting um, team know who it is that you've met with so that they can keep track so that when OCI comes, they can say, Hey, you know, I, I've seen that James has been in several times. He's met these attorneys. They've all spoken highly of him. Like we should give him or her an interview, that kind of thing. Um, so the recruiting manager at Foley Hoag noticed how many people I was speaking with and then wanted to know more about how I was doing my outreach, who I was, um, you know, focusing my efforts on that kind of thing. And we formalized the program. So we invited some other folks in. Um, specifically, we had just formed an attorney or an attorney committee for attorneys of color at Foley Hoag. And so we basically split up all of the, the schools in Boston to say, hey, why don't you be the point of contact at this school and you be the point of contact at that school? And so it was the same thing as I was doing previously. It was just more formalized. Um, and that was sort of the initial step I took in moving from doing something just as a passion project to doing it as my profession. Um, because once I had a formalized program, then I, I could use that to expand my network. And it became really important when I wanted to make the official leap into a DNI role to show that I had some actual programming experience and that I had, you know, uh, contributed in a formal way to what my law firm was doing. Sorry, real quick. Um, D what does DNI mean? Uh, diversity and inclusion. And then from, from Foley, uh, from that position that became more formalized, is that what directly led to you jumping in and applying to the position at BU? 
Yeah, um, I think there's there's two things. One, um, and I, I want to be really transparent about this. Um, part of it was it's because it was what I was passionate about. But the flip side of that is I, I knew really early on that um, being a practicing attorney was nothing I was passionate about. It was the exact opposite. And being a lawyer is really, really hard. Um, and <laughs> I've done hard things before. It's not that it was so hard I couldn't do it. It was that... Um, you only get good at it if you care about it. And so I could have spent the next, you know, five, eight, 10 years of my life really struggling at something that I, I didn't have any passion for to get good enough to stay in the field. Um, and I share that because I think it's important that people realize, particularly when you start out in your career, that there's room to navigate and there's room to move. That the first decision you make when you get out of law school isn't the last decision you're going to make. It's not going to be your job forever. Um, I think a lot of law students have a lot of um, a lot of trepidation and fear about choosing the exact right job right out of law school or thinking because they don't get the job they always wanted that that means somehow they failed or they're never going to get the job they've wanted. And I can give you a list of attorneys who have taken incredibly circuitous routes to get to where they are, and they're now in careers that they're incredibly happy with. And I just, I, I want to be upfront and transparent about the fact that I, I won't call my time in corporate law a mistake because it wasn't, it got me to where I am. Um, but that initial couple of years where I thought, oh crap, I made a huge mistake. I shouldn't be doing this kind of work can be really, really scary if nobody tells you that it's okay. Um, so I just, I always like to share that with law students and other people that it's okay to not like what you do or even not to be great at what you do if it's not the thing that you're passionate about, the thing that you should be doing. Um, so it was the it was the two of those that got me to make the move to BU and pursue DNI as a actual profession. It was one I was good and passionate about it, but two, like what I was doing in the legal industry, I had no passion for, and so I was never going to be great at it. I think that's a that's a really good point. What was the first experience that you had in corporate law that kind of showed you that you weren't passionate about law? And the second part is, do you do you find that having your law degree today still helps you? And obviously, you're doing almost a completely different career um, than when you started. So I'm kind of curious how one, you know, what was the first experience that you had that you said, OK, I'm not really passionate about this? And two, do you think that your law degree still helps you today? Sure. Uh, so I remember my first venture capital deal that, that was keeping me at work late at night. Um, you know, I, I was there on a weekend. I was there until like one or two in the morning, just getting signatures, closing deal docs, doing, doing, you know, some really basic diligence because it was a startup company. Um, and when it closed the, they closed, I don't remember exactly how much the round of funding was, but it was in the millions of dollars. It was, a, it was a fairly high number for somebody who's never dealt with you know, millions of actual dollars before, um, to close. And I remember sitting in my, I was working from home that night. Um, and my husband was there as well. And when the deal closed, we got an email that said something along the lines of the funds hit. Thanks everyone. And my husband was like, isn't this the thing that you've been working on for the last few weeks? And I said, yeah. And he goes, and that, that's it. You just get an email. There's not like a celebration dinner or something. And I was like, no, like, this kind of money doesn't really matter that much to the people who deal with numbers way bigger than this. And I just remember thinking, and this is, this is where having a passion for the work comes in handy. Um, 
I remember thinking, you know, for the rest of my life, I can continue to close venture capital deals or do M&A deals. And in essence, what I'm doing is making rich people richer some way or another. And for me, it was that end state that I just didn't care about. Um, there are a lot of people who genuinely care and get enjoyment out of solving the problem itself. And I can totally understand that. It was just nothing I was passionate about. So there's people who love doing the work because navigating the documents and figuring out exactly how all the clauses fit together to get the best outcome possible for their for their client is something that they're like legitimately, genuinely passionate about. And that's awesome. I'm just not one of those people. Um, and so it was that first venture capital deal that closed that I thought, well, if this is my career for the rest of my life, I'm never going to be happy doing this kind of work. Um, and then I can't remember what, what was the second question. Uh, yeah, the second part. No, that that's a great answer, and I I really appreciate that. The second part was just that having your law degree. Do you think that it helps you? Oh you yeah. Know, say, or how does it help you currently? Because obviously you're you're not currently practicing, so it's a little bit different. So I'm curious. Yeah. Um. So and this is one of those answers that's kind of annoying because it's going to sound like I'm just towing the line for law school. But honestly, what they teach you in law school is less the intricacies of the law and more how to think through and. Um, issue spot. And that's something that if you can do it with a legal background, um, you can be value add to any organization. So even when I do diversity and inclusion work, you know, I might get right now I'm responsible for handling all client requests. So a couple of years ago, um, to make a long story short, there was a law firm that that hired or elevated a class of partners that was incredibly non-diverse. There was a lot of backlash within the industry. Um, several dozen general general counsel put together a letter, an open letter saying, you know, they expect their outside counsel to be diverse. Um, and since then, we've had a lot of client requests asking about diversity within the firm, how diverse are the teams, what steps are we taking to diversify? How do we support diverse attorneys? You know, it's incredible, incredibly important stuff to help diversify the profession. But how you answer those questions, what information you share and the programs you build all have, um, you know, outside boundaries prescribed by the law because of um, affirmative, affirmative action rules and equal opportunity rules, um, making sure you're minim minimizing your exposure to possible um, like reverse racism, discrimination cases, that kind of thing, um, all factors into how you build your DNI support programs within any organization. If you don't have a legal background, you may not see some of those legal issues that crop up. And I think what law school teaches you is how to be a good issue spotter. So you can look at something like a client request. You can look at something like a proposal that you're putting forward and say, hey, these are some issues that we should probably run by the general counsel to get her to bless off on to say that this is, you know, legal and above the board. It's the same thing as, um, you know, when you're in the military and, and you realize that you need to run something by the JAG to say, hey, this this may be not necessarily a questionable decision, but I want to make sure that it's within the bounds of what's prescribed by the UCMJ. Um you don't necessarily have the same eye to spot those issues if you didn't go to law school. And so it's sort of how to think through problems is what they teach you at law school that's completely transferable. I think that's a great point. And I think that that could probably you know, be expanded to a number of different industries outside of just the legal field. So I think that's a really good point. I want to transition a little bit to specifics about your current role. So what I wanted to ask, um, what what do you like most about your current role? I say, what is it? I, I think I already kind of know the answer, but I'd like to kind of have you <laughs> talk a little bit about specifically what what do you like the most about being in DNI and having the position that you do? Um, 
it's it's one of the rare jobs I think where every day I I end the day feeling really good about something I did. It could be a program that I've instituted. It could be a meeting I've had. It could just be a conversation I've had with an individual attorney or law student. But I genuinely feel like at the end of every day, I've helped either make the law firm or the legal industry just you know a degree better than it was previously, or maybe helped somebody navigate their profession so that they're going to be successful in a way that they might not have been without whatever it was I did that day. Um, and it feels really good. I, I would I would say the work I do now is as close a sense of satisfaction I've gotten to being in the military as anything else I've done outside of uniform, outside of being in uniform. Um, to some degree, being in a DNI role is a lot like being um, it's a lot like being an officer in that you're. And I apologize. I realize a lot of people listening to this aren't going to have a military background, so this might not make sense. Um, but when I was a commanding officer, the majority of my soldiers had skills and knowledge that I did not have. Um, and I knew what they could do and I knew what their capabilities were, but I didn't know how they did it, but it was still my job to help them advance and help them reach their full potential to some degree. That's what being a DNI professional is as well. Um, you know, I'm not an attorney anymore. Um, I'm not a practicing attorney. I have no idea what litigators do or what our investigations group does in terms of their day-to-day, you know, legal expertise, but being able to help them navigate their profession, help them navigate their interpersonal relationships within the firm, navigate their career choices, that kind of thing is something that, that I can contribute to and something that I, when I do contribute to get a lot of satisfaction out of. So I think it's just the, the ability to help individual people and also, like long-term help make systematic changes to make it more welcoming so that hopefully in a generation, we don't have the same sort of um, gulf between people who have access and people who don't. I think, I, I think that really speaks to me as well. I think that a lot of veterans, when they first transition out, um, probably struggle with that. They have issues with how do I get this a sense of fulfillment that they may have had within the military. So I think that's really uh, a great point that you bring up. And it's, it's nice that you, it seems that you're getting that in your current role. Um, and this is more of a question just to kind of follow up on that is what type of advice would you give to students um, or young attorneys to help include more people, uh, diverse people of LGBTQ backgrounds and people of color um, because not everyone is going to go into a DNI field, but I know that for a lot of us, this is an issue that's very, you know, personal, and we really care about it. So I'm curious, kind of what what advice would you give to people who want to have those types of environments, but maybe aren't in the same role as yourself? I think anybody can do what I did initially, which is simply to accept every invitation that comes your way, and it's really easy as an attorney to put yourself out there. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, there there's a finite number of Black or African-American attorneys in Boston, and they can't, they can't um, bear the burden of doing all the outreach to the Black and African-American law students in the Boston area law schools, or more widely in the profession at large, um, because that's, that's too many people, it's too difficult. You do not have to be diverse to be the person who does outreach to diverse law students to bring them into the firm to do the same thing I did. Same thing as you don't have to be a first-generation attorney to do outreach to first-generation law students and bring them in and say, hey, you may have heard about M&A work, but this is what it's actually like, or whatever it is that your specific um, 
practice area is. You know, if you're an employment lawyer, I'm sure most law students have no idea what an actual employment lawyer does on a day-to-day basis. So when you're a first-year law student and you're doing employment work, reach out to your alma mater, whatever school you went to, and say, hey, if there are any students who want to come in and see a law firm and see what an employment lawyer does, feel free to reach out. Here's my contact information. And then make the time to talk to them. It doesn't take more than 15, 20 minutes to have a good conversation with a law student that can expose them to something they've never seen before. And even if it's just making them more comfortable in a in the legal um, industry, like physically the building that they're in, because it's something that most people aren't exposed to, that's incredibly helpful. So I think just putting yourself out there as somebody who's approachable and actually following through with it is really easy and anybody can do that. Um, and that's a huge step towards making the industry less, or how do I say this correctly? It's a huge step towards removing some of those gates that are there just by virtue of access. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, I think often a lot of times people might think that, okay, well, I'm not a person of color, or maybe I'm not uh, a first-generation law student or attorney. So maybe, like you, you, know, you brought up a really good point of you can't have only people of color or only people who are first-generation law uh, students or attorneys bearing the brunt of trying to bring in these people. And so I kind of think it's this idea of kind of paying it forward and that anybody can do that. Anybody can reach out to their law law school or their alma mater to try to help be more inclusive. So I think that's a really good point. Um, I'm curious that with, do you do do any pro bono work? I know you say you don't practice, but do you do any pro bono work currently? Or do you have any interest in doing pro bono work or possibly even returning to practicing in, in even a limited capacity? Or do you think that you'll stay solely with the DNI career field going forward? So I've kept my my bar membership inactive, meaning if I wanted to do pro bono work, I could reactivate it um, without having to retake the bar exam. Um, I think I may have described that a little bit incorrectly, but that's basically the gist of it. Um, so I shouldn't say I have no desire to ever do pro bono work. I would say right now, no, I, I don't think. Frankly, I don't think I've got the skills to be a valuable contributor in a legal capacity anymore in terms of joining a legal team to help write briefs or anything like that. Um, where I focus my efforts now is on organiza- organization within bar within different bar associations. So I'm an active member of the LGBT Bar Association, the Hispanic National Bar Association, and the Asian American Bar Association. And in that capacity, I help those organizations out with organization, outreach, um, and doing whatever I can to help be value add within the organization. So it's not necessarily pro bono work, but I think it is still um, relevant and helps within the legal industry um, in the same way that doing pro bono work would. Um, So I'm still, I I still sort of, you know, I'm tethered by a very fine string, but I don't think I'll ever practice again. it would take way too much spin up to, to get me into a place where I would be value add to a team as an actual practicing lawyer now. I did want to ask, this is more open-ended. How do you think that being a first generation student um, attorney has impacted you and your career? Do you think you have brought a different perspective to the law and then also to DNI, I'm sure you have to DNI, but I'm just kind of curious, how, how do you think that that's impacted you uh, throughout your career? That's interesting. Um, it's a hard question to answer because I, it's, um, 
to know how it's impacted me, I would have to sort of know what my career would have looked like if I weren't first generation. So where would I be today if when I got to law school, I knew or had access to everything I have access to now? Um, and I don't know what that would look like. I can say that um, I have probably been more prone to, I don't want to call them mistakes. I've probably been more prone to um, making decisions that other people may not have may have said are not the best decisions in terms of professional advancement because I don't know or didn't know at the time what the ramifications were long term of those decisions. Um, Can you give us an example? I'm just, if you don't mind, say if we're putting you on the spot, no worries. But yeah, sure. Um, something as simple as when I when I was a first year law student and doing networking, I approached it very differently than most people because I didn't. I think a lot of people who come into the legal profession knowing what networking is, think of every interaction with other people as sort of what can this person get me and what does this person provide me access to? Um, I didn't think of it that way because I, again, I didn't know how important interpersonal relationships were or anything like that. So my whole first year of law school, every time I met lawyers, I sort of met them from a perspective of, do I like this person and would I want to get dinner with them? And if I did, I would invite them either to get dinner with my husband and I, or sometimes, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but I was inviting like partners at law firms to my house for dinner with me and my husband, because I, I really like them and say, Oh, you should meet my husband. Why don't you come over for dinner sometime? Um, Sorry to interrupt you, but did you have success with that? Because honestly, I think that a lot of first generation law students have a lot of issues with the, the networking piece in general. And so that is a very different way of doing it, but it's, it seems a lot more interpersonal and a lot more genuine than, the almost transactional nature that a lot of networking is, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it worked out um, just because of what you said. I think a lot of the people that I met as a first year law student did see me and the way I approached interactions as being very genuine because frankly, it it was. It's just sort of who I am and how I do things. Um, I'm not suggesting everybody do the same kind of thing that I did. Um, but I do know that the relationships I developed lasted a very long time. And even when I got to Wilmer Hale, some, what, six, seven years after I went through OCI, there were attorneys that I met through the interview process or through networking events who remembered me from years before because of the type of relationship we had developed, um, as opposed to just sort of the, the more, um, formal, you know, we had our, we had our coffee and handshake and I asked you, you know, how did you get into your profession and what do you like about it kind of question. Um, so I think in that sense, because I was so unguarded as a first year law student, I was able to develop relationships in a way that a lot of people weren't. The flip side of that is, you know, there are people and I can probably name some off, off the top of my head who saw my approach as being a little bit frivolous and possibly even unprofessional. Um, but that was, I don't even want to call it the risk I was willing to take. It's just the way I approached it because I didn't know any other way to approach it. Um, So I think I generally advise law students to be their authentic selves, be as genuine as you can, because that sort of authentic, genuine approach to your interactions in the legal profession is rare and I think very, very appreciated by attorneys. Um, You always have to stay professional, obviously. Um, But I think the way to approach professionalism for first-generation law students, and I think it, it also goes for people of color and LGBT folks, um, you don't have to strip yourself of all identity to fit into some sort of preconceived notion of what professional is. Bring your identity to the profession, be your authentic self, and that really makes you stick out from other people in a way that is value add. 
I really appreciate that answer. I think that that's, that's such a good point. I would say you may, at some instances, like you said, I've come off of possibly being slightly in the, the camp of more unprofessional, but I think that that's such a good point about being genuine and being yourself and bringing who you are to the table. And so it's probably a little bit of a tough line to toe sometimes because I know that uh, generally speaking, the legal profession is one of the more conservative of all industries, but you know, I think that's a really good point. Um, I know we're coming up a little bit close on time, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, but I did want to ask, so we usually like to close our interviews by asking, what advice would you give to first-generation law students who are listening, knowing what you know now? Um, because I think it's a very valuable piece of advice coming from attorneys who've kind of been there, done that, and are a little bit further ahead. Uh, I think the biggest one I, I already touched on, which is you know, making sure you're insofar as you're comfortable and as far as you can bringing your authentic self to your profession and to your interactions. Um, I think the other thing, and I sort of touched on this earlier, is giving yourself space to fail. Um, it's it's okay. Everything from you know getting a bad grade in law school to maybe choosing the quote unquote the wrong job for a summer or even when you get out of law school. Um, Things I, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the very first partners I met at a networking event was the head of recruiting at one of the big law firms in Boston. Again, not knowing how important networking was or anything, and the way I genuinely, generally did outreach, you know, I sent him the cursory email, "Hey, I'd love to get coffee," and he responded and said, "Sure, are you available Tuesday?" I was still in the reserve at the time, and I said, "You know, I'm, I'm actually going to be at drill for the next two weeks. Let me touch base with you afterwards to try to um, schedule this." Now, one, I would always advise a first-year law student now, like. <laughs> never, never tell a partner, no, you don't have time. Generally speaking, you always have time. It's the partners who don't have time. So if they're willing to give you their time, just say yes and figure out how to make it work. Um, that being said, I didn't know it. So I, I asked him if we could reschedule and then I never followed up. Um, I just forgot and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, then when I went through to go interview during OCI, he was one of my interviewers. I forgot having met him at the end of our 30 minutes together. I said, you know, it was really nice to meet you. And he paused looked at me a little bit concerned and said, it's nice talking to you again as well, Adam. Um, and I just remember being devastated that everything had fallen through. I just thought, well, now I'm never going to get a job. This person hates me. I've blown him off and then forgotten him. He remembered me. It was all just terrible, you know, and it didn't work out that way. Like I, I ended out fine. I ended out with a job. I ended out doing something I love. Um, but for the few days after that, I just remembered being like almost depressed because I thought, you know, everything is a failure now because I've made this one mistake and law students do that all the time. Um, so I think that's the other thing I, I like to tell law students is give yourself some space to fail. It's going to be okay. And a lot of times it's the things you quote unquote fail at that end up getting you to where you need to be. Um, so, you know, give yourself a little bit of grace there and things are going to be fine. Thanks. I think that that's wonderful advice and it, it's very, very sound because I think we all fall into that trap of thinking that that one poor grade or bad experience or hiccup is you know, the end all be all. But Adam, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure that we'll have a lot of first generation law students that are very eager to listen to this episode and you may even get some contacts afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody wants to reach out, I'm always available. Um, I think you have my professional email address um, and then I'll um, actually, I, I can just tell you. And then if you want to put it on, you can, um, they can always reach me at my, my civilian email as well, which is just harman.adam.j at gmail. Um, but I'm happy to talk to anyone, even if I'm no longer, you know, at a law firm. Um, I think 
I still have relevant contacts and I'm happy to talk to people. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Professor Adam Eckert for introducing us to Adam Harmon and making this all possible. And of course, Adam Harmon for his time in candor and also Caitlin Fitzgerald for her wonderful artwork and our logo. Until next time, 